0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Friday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the gospel text that we will hear on Sunday. Now, this Friday we have quite a long gospel narrative because it is Palm Sunday, so it really goes through the whole uh, passion. It would probably take up our whole time together to read the passion narrative. Not quite, but certainly a lot. So what I thought I would do this evening is uh, lean into uh, the widely popular Fulton Sheen, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, and his insights into the seven last words, those seven last things that he talked about, that is, Jesus Christ talked about on the cross. So uh, this will be our emphasis tonight. Uh, You know, we really are now turning our attention to Jerusalem. We really now ought to be thinking about the crucifixion, fixing our gaze upon what is about to take place in Jerusalem on Calvary. So this is what this evening is about. Once again, if you have any questions, comments, observations, feedback, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org and just hit the contact link there, send your question or observation or whatever you might have to say to me. And as I have said before, and as I will continue to say, I love to dialogue about the faith Certainly, it is very life-giving for me, and just to get to know new folks out there who are listening to the program, it really is a great joy for me. Uh, It's one of the fun things about this radio program. So, with that, these seven last words. So, our Lord spoke seven times from the cross, and this is what we call the seven last words. But certainly, by many accounts, they are more phrases. It's just in our tradition, we speak to these as the seven last words. Now, in sacred scripture, only three others have their final words recorded. It's interesting. Maybe pause for a second who those three people might be. Who? Well, Israel, right, Jacob, Moses, and Stephen. And in a certain sense, we can say that they all belong to the first category, if you will. huh? Israel was, well, of course, the first Israelite. Moses was the first to belong to the legal dispensation, and certainly Stephen, as we know, uh, was the first Christian martyr. It's interesting to really think about it. We do not even have the dying words to the likes of the Old Testament Joseph or even Saints Peter and Paul, so um, there's something to be said there about Jacob and Moses and Stephen and the category they belong to. The dying words of those three began something sublime in the history of God's dealing with men. And so certainly we can say then that their words point to the seven last words of Christ, whose dealings with man would be unveiled on the cross. There's a great line that comes to us from Fulton Sheen. He says, In this hour, this sublime hour, he called all his children to the pulpit of the cross. One of my favorite phrases of his, to the pulpit of the cross. And every word he said to them was set down for the purpose of an eternal publication, and undying consolation. There was never a preacher like the dying Christ. There was never a congregation like that which gathered about the pulpit of the cross. And certainly, there is never a sermon like the seven last words. So, what was the first word, huh? Well, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, one can well imagine that his executioners expected him to cry, huh? Seneca once wrote that those who were crucified cursed the day of their birth, their mothers, and often would spat upon those around them. Cicero once noted that it was necessary to actually cut out the tongue because the words were filled with so much venom. So would the executioners expect a word from our Lord on the cross? Sure. Why not? I mean, this is What's expected? You nail someone to the cross, and you will hear curses like you've never heard before. But from our Lord, not what they expected. And how about the Pharisees? The man who once spoke of a loving enemy and doing good to them that hate you would certainly now on the cross cry out against those words now, right? Huh? <laughs> Everyone expected a cry, but no one, maybe minus the three at the foot of the cross. Expected the cry they did hear, that sweet fragrance. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive whom? Forgive enemies? <laughs> Fulton Sheen reflects. The soldier in the courtroom of Caiaphas who struck him with a mailed fist? Pilate, the politician who condemned God to retain the friendship of Caesar? Herod, who robbed wisdom in the garment of a fool? The soldiers who swung the king of kings on a tree between heaven and earth? Forgive them? Why? Because they know what to do? No. Because they know not what they are doing. If they knew what they were doing and still went on doing it, if they knew what a terrible crime they were committing by sentencing life to death, if they knew what a perversion of justice it was to prefer Barabbas to Christ, if they knew what cruelty it was to take the feet that trod everlasting hills and pinion them to the limb of a tree, if they knew what they were doing and still went on doing it, unmindful of the fact that the very blood which they shed was capable of redeeming them, they would never be saved. Rather, they would be damned. It was only the ignorance of their great sin that brought them within the pale of the hearing of that cry from the cross. It is not wisdom that saves, It is ignorance, as Fulton Sheen puts it. So there our Lord is on the cross, looking into past, present, and future, my dear friends, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To every man who's donned a breath, I say, to you and to me and to all of us, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And is this not the kind, is this not the kind of forgiveness that we are called to share in? Is this not the kind of forgiveness that we are to strive to imitate, as difficult as it may be? Yes! Yes! I mean, Christ sets the bar high. You know, one of the more fascinating truths that comes to us from the cross is what often happens during the time of death, huh? Men in dying either proclaim their own innocence, or condemn the judges who sentenced them to death, or... else asks pardon for their sins. My dear friends, Christ asks no pardon, but only extends pardon. The tension of such a paradox is overwhelming at times, is it not? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second word, I promise you this day you shall be with me in paradise. So there they were, huh? Two thieves, (laughs) one on the right and one on the left. And we ought to say something here about suffering. While suffering has the capacity to make us more like Christ, it does not necessarily make us better unless we allow it to purify us because it can sear the soul and lead our soul to a kind of degeneration. The thief on the left was certainly no better because of pain. He wanted down from his cross. And before we make judgment on this man, my dear friends, be mindful. Have we not all cried foul, even in the midst of our own sin? Mm. Be mindful, my friends. But how about the staggering words of the man to the right, huh? I mean, think about it. After the thief on the left wants down from his cross, the man on the right says, what? Do you not have fear of God when thou art undergoing the same sentence? And we, justly enough, we receive no more than the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing. And then, (laughs) in a phenomenal act, he thrusts himself, hurls himself towards divine mercy. And we hear those great words. I promise you, this day, you shall be with me in paradise. Fulton Sheen reflects A dying man asked a dying man for eternal life. A man without possessions asked a poor man for a kingdom. A thief at the door of death asked to die like a thief and still paradise. Think about this. One would have thought a saint would have been the first soul purchased over the counter of Calvary by the red coins of redemption. But in the divine plan of things, my friends, it was a thief who was the escort of the king of kings into paradise. Oh, the tension of paradox. If our Lord had come merely as a teacher, what if the thief ever asked for forgiveness? But since the thief's request touched the reason of his coming to earth, namely uh, to save souls, the thief heard the answer he heard, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. It was the thief's last prayer, Fulton Sheen says. Perhaps even the first. That's the most striking thing. The most striking thing. St. Augustine once said that death itself might be the most profound grace because it is in that moment before death that God comes flying to our aid. This is why we should never take that away. These are words of compassion, my friends, words of mercy. Remember what the word compassion means, compasio, to suffer with. And remember what I've said about mercy. Those who are most weak attract God because it attracts his mercy. And mercy is the chief attribute of God, love's second name. And love incarnate there on the cross, agape, the highest form of divine sacrificial love, exercises that mercy. And he says to the thief today, you will be with me in paradise. Amen to that. And how about the third word? Oh, is this one rich? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Now, this word contains the same word that was used in addressing his mother at the marriage feast, right? In Cana, huh? When she, for the sake of not embarrassing the host, made the simple prayer that the guests had no wine. And how did he answer? What is it that to me when my hour is not yet come. Now, we have to remember a couple of things here, my friends. First of all, the word woman. We hear that and we say, wow, that's, that's uh, some uh, disrespect, huh? I mean, from our Lord to his own mother. But no, actually it's not, because in antiquity, uh, the title woman was a sign of honor and respect. Not disrespect, but respect. So very important. Now, something else here is the word hour. John develops this as a theme to his gospel. Christ constantly talking about his hour. And well, what is the hour about? Well, the hour is about his passion and death. And so John wants us to see how the woman and the hour are synchronized. This is why we see her at the foot of the cross, in his hour, if you will, in his passion and death. What takes place at the wedding feast at Cana, which, oh, by the way is where he performed his first miracle. For John, it's where he arrived on the scene, has us already thinking about the cross. And the language of the woman, and the language of uh, the hour certainly is what brings these two great events together. Very important. Once again, Fulton Sheen (laughs) has so many rich things to say. He says this, In other words, our Lord was saying to his blessed mother at Cana, he he was reflecting upon what we were just talking about, My dear mother, do you realize that you are asking me to proclaim my divinity, to appear before the world as the Son of God, and to prove my divinity by my works and my miracles? The moment that I do this, I begin the royal road to the cross, when I am no longer known among men as the son of the carpenter, but as the Son of God. That will be my first step toward Calvary. My hour is not yet come, but would you have me anticipate it? Is it your will that I go to the cross? If I do, your relationship to me changes. You are now my mother. You are known everywhere in our little village as the mother of Jesus. But if I appear now as the Savior man and begin the work of redemption, your role will change too. Once I undertake the salvation of mankind, you will not only be my mother, but you will also be the mother of everyone whom I redeem. I am the head of humanity. As soon as I save the body of humanity, you who are the mother of the head will become also the mother of my mystical body, the church. You will then be the universal mother, the new Eve, as I am the new Adam. Fulton Sheen continues to reflect. To indicate the role that you will play in redemption, I... Now bestow upon you that title of universal motherhood, Motherhood, I call you woman. It was to you that I referred when I said to Satan all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that I would put enmity between him and the woman, between his brood of evil and your seed, which I am, that great title of woman I dignify you with now. And I shall dignify you with it again when my hour comes and when I am unfurled upon the cross like a wounded eagle. We are in this work of redemption together. What is yours is mine. From this hour on, we are not just Mary and Jesus. We are the new Adam and the new Eve, beginning a new humanity, changing the water of sin into the wine of life. Knowing all this, my dear mother, is it your will that I anticipate the cross and that I go to Calvary? Hmm. So rich. So rich. Three years... Had passed from Kena, and now he looked down on his dearest two creatures and spoke to them in universal terms. She was now a universal mother, and what can we say of John here? Huh? John stands in our stead as the universal son, and like John, who took Mary into his home, signifying taking Mary into her heart, does he take Mary into his home? into his heart. Those very rich words, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, are words that are very important in the bigger picture. Because what Fulton Sheen is talking about there is the way in which, indeed, that moment fulfills the Old Testament. And certainly what John wanted to communicate in his opening chapters. Okay, the fourth word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there are two very important levels to this text. First, that he is quoting Psalm 22, which is a Torah hymn. Psalm 22 starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think we were talking about this the other week. This is a hymn of thanksgiving sung during the Torah feast. He's now instituting a new Torah, what does the word Torah mean? In the Hebrew, it means literally to give thanks. And so in Psalm 22, when this was sung, it was a praise of actually thanksgiving. Well, now Christ is singing this hymn of thanksgiving on the cross. And how striking is this? In light of the fact that the word Eucharist, Eucharisteros in the Greek that we read from John 6, literally means Thanksgiving. The other day I was talking about Rabbi Gamaliel, that all popular rabbi that we were introduced to in Acts 5, huh? He was kind of the rabbi of rabbis. It was said when he died, the glory of the Torah died. He once noted in this prophetic tone that the Todah will never cease because he understood the prophecies about Jesus Christ and the new covenant. Indeed, Christ there on the cross is the new Torah. He is the Eucharist there on the cross. Now, something else. This is just not about the Torah hymn, lest we miss a very important point to the cry itself. In this particular midday, he stood between the light which was created and the ultimate darkness, where evil will be condemned. The tensions of history, we could say, he felt within himself. The light came into the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend the light. So here you have Christ on the cross, yes, instituting the new Torah in the Eucharist. But this is also something else. Christ's cry was a cry of abandonment. And Fulton Sheen says a cry of abandonment, which he felt standing in a sinner's place, but it was not of despair. And we have to be clear on that point, huh? Because the soul that despairs never cries to God. As the keenest pangs of hunger are felt not by the dying man who is completely exhausted, but by the man battling for his life with the last ounce of strength. So abandonment was felt not only by the ungodly and unholy, but by the most holy of men, the Lord on the cross. The greatest mental agony in the world and the cause of many psychic disorders is that minds and souls and hearts are without God. Such emptiness would never have a consolation if he had not felt all of this as his own. This is so important, my friends, to better understand this cry. So from this point on, no atheist could ever say in his loneliness he does not know what it is to be without God. This emptiness of humanity through sin, though he felt it as his own, was nevertheless spoken with this loud voice to indicate, not despair, but rather hope that the sun would rise again and scatter the darkness. Amen. How about those words, I am thirsty? When he was crucified, he refused to take a concoction, which was offered. Now, he avidly asked for a drink. A couple of things to note here. There was a considerable difference between the two drinks, huh? The first was what? Myrrh, and was a stupefying potion to ward off pain this he refused, in order that his senses might not be dulled. The drink that was now given to him was vinegar or the sour bad wine of the soldiers. What is that? Verse, John 19, verse 29. There was a jar there full of vinegar, so they filled a sponge with the vinegar and put it on a stick of hyssop and brought it close to his mouth. Jesus drank the vinegar. Now he who turned water into wine at Cana certainly could have used the same infinite resources to have satisfied his own thirst huh except for the fact that he never worked a miracle in his own behalf so why did he ask for a drink it was not solely because of the need great though it must have been obviously certainly he was fulfilling a prophecy psalm 21 parched is my throat like clay in the baking and my tongue sticks fast in my mouth. I look round for pity where pity is none, for comfort where there is no comfort to be found. They gave me gall to eat, and when I was thirsty, they gave me vinegar to drink. Mm. He was taking out of the scriptures the idea that the Messiah of the promise must not accept death out of fate, but perform it as a deed. Exhaustion was not to put him to death, as exhaustion accounted not for his thirst. My dear friends, he was fulfilling sacred scripture and at once thirsting for souls. Is this not what the great Blessed Teresa of Calcutta talks about? When she met our Lord in the poorest of the poor and heard that man say, I thirst. Those words gripped Mother Teresa and history was forever changed because of it. She responded to those words and we too, my dear friends, are called to share in those words. How about this sixth word? It is finished. Consumatum est. Consumatum est. It is consummated. The other day, we were talking about in Theology of the Body how in the Old Testament, you had this relationship between God and man. And in many ways, it was the engagement period, and maybe to even some extent, the wedding day. The New Testament, the New Covenant, in light of the Eucharist, is the wedding night. Mark 14, 24 says what? This is the blood of the New Testament. This is the blood of the New Covenant. This blood that we actually take in when we receive the Eucharist is a consummation between man and God. When he says, consumatum est, it is finished, he is saying effectively, The Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And we do. This is what we do when we receive our Lord in the Eucharist. We come before him and we receive him. And our Lord enters into a bridal union with our very souls. Powerful stuff. And what can we say of this last word? We only have a few minutes left. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I love this reflection that Fulton Sheen offers up here as he turns to the prodigal son. The prodigal son was returning back home 33 years before. He had left the father's house and gone off into the foreign country of the world. There he began spending his substance, the divine riches of power and wisdom. In his last hour, his substance of flesh and blood was wasted among sinners. There was nothing left to feed upon except the husks and the sneers and the vinegar of human ingratitude he now entered into himself and prepared to take the road back home and to his father's house. And as he did so, he let fall from his lips the perfect prayer, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And is this not the prayer that we wish to put on our lips with the confident assurance that we will in fact be beamed up to heaven? But we need to be responsible for our actions and the graces that he bestows on us to share in his life that we might put on our lips those great words. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. We turn to the woman as we pray the words that come to us from sacred scripture. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth